This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're with Kaya and Dylan and the Grapevine this morning on Triple R. And cities and towns, let's face facts, are not designed for people of all genders to feel and be safe. But they could be, according to our next guest, Dr Nicole Carms. Nicole's Director of the XYZ Lab at Monash University and a Senior Lecturer in Monash's Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture. And it's great to have you here at Triple R. Nicole, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And uh, since the murder of Eurysity Dixon, Nicole, there's been a lot of discussion about the way people in authority, such as the police, speak about violent and gendered crime. But you also think city planners have a role here and uh, we could be doing better to design our cities for people of all genders. Maybe sort of tell us how that process works now for designing public spaces and and how we could be doing better. Mm. Well, um, the XYX lab at Monash, which is the lab, research lab that I direct, is really trying to think about this nexus of gender and public urban space, um, sexuality, identity, and to really think very carefully about what the gendered experiences that we're having in cities are, because I guess we kind of feel like cities shape our gender, but also our gender has a capacity to shape the city as well. So um, I think with recent events, but you know, our research over the last um, two years has been really thinking... Um, quite specifically about women and young girls um, and their experiences of cities um, and um, also the LGBTIQ community within that um, to just kind of give us a a more complex picture of cities because they are gendered um, and often planning documents, um, the ways that we go about designing cities don't register the, the gendered nature of cities. In what way are they gendered? Well, we know that um, women in particular experience and do things in the city quite differently to men. So one of the research projects that we're working on at the moment, which is um, like a sub-research group of this gendered cities stuff, is about public transport. And so when you look at the way that women move around cities, they move um, in really different ways to men. So men tend to go back and forth, A and B, and women are moving in very complex ways because they generally have different tasks to carry out during the day. And so what that can mean, um, and I think this is really interesting, is that they can be waiting or in a lot of transitory spaces in the city, um, and that then means that different things happen for them and that they require different things. Um, You can also imagine that elderly people, um, elderly women, require different things, women with prams, etc. So there's different ways that that manifests. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess in uh, historically speaking, city planners and um, policy makers and so on have been those who've made decisions about the way that um, a city works and, and the way that it's structured and so on. You've been working through an initiative called Free to Be, which I guess directly engages women and girls uh, asking about their direct experiences in the city and, and where potentially they might feel unsafe and so on. I wonder if you can speak to us a little bit about that, that initiative and, and what you've found from that so far. Sure. Well, Free to Be is actually an initiative by Plan International, um, which is a children's charity organisation. And in 2016, they did a pilot project in Melbourne. And so there was a lot of great um, preliminary research generated from that project. And of course, we're very interested in that because it's in Melbourne and it was talking about the spaces that we all live in. And since that time and in the last couple of months, they've actually done the same refined project across five cities internationally. So they did Sydney um, and we've done um, Delhi, Madrid, Lima and Kampala. And we're looking for differences, but there are a lot of similarities as well. And so the the project, which is essentially a crowd mapping project, which allows um, uh, women and girls to 
use a web browser on their phone or computer to go in and really pinpoint the locations where they're having particular experiences. Mostly women and girls want to talk about their bad experiences. Um, but it gives us a really precise location on a map that tells us about particular areas or hotspots and it also tells us about particular typologies. So one of those would be you know, public transport or it could be particular strips or areas of cities um, where we can start to dig a bit deeper and find out a little bit more about what's going on in those spots. And what do you think might come of it? Because the XYX lab was in, involved and uh, will you be analysing this data as well and coming up with any recommendations? Or? Yes, yes. So we've we've been involved in both projects um, and uh, what we're in, the, we're actually right in the thick of kind of the the drafts of the final reports across the five cities. So I do have a, some insights. Um, and I think that there are some things that we we kind of knew, and that is that a lot of sexual harassment and sexual assault happens on the street in these transitory spaces when women are moving between places. But there's some really quite troubling things that have come out of this recent research across the five cities and I I did a lot of detailed um, reading and it's called coding where you go in and you look at the comments because women are able to not only make a spot where something happens but then to actually say very clearly what, what did happen to them. There's quite troubling things like um, teams of men, so groups of men that are um, sexually harassing or assaulting women. Um, lots of sexual harassment from cars and what we call curb crawling, where women are being followed. Um, and so this this kind of groups of men thing, I think, is something surprising that we hadn't seen because perhaps of the way we collected the data in Melbourne. Because we're getting better at the way that we ask the questions, we're getting more detailed information. And this, of course, has been on people's minds a lot since the horrible death of Eurydice Dixon mm. a couple of weeks ago. But in that time, there's been reports of, of another assault not far at all from Princess Park in Carlton in the early hours of the morning. Mm. We've heard that Daniel Andrews has met with the Lord Mayor to see what kind of solutions might be available and what, what the state government and, and Melbourne City Council can do as well in the wake of this. Are you hopeful that some of the, the learnings, I guess, that you're finding from free to be and your research might be implemented here in Melbourne? Mm. Look, I am. I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about the capacity for um, local and state government to engage with this work. And indeed, um, Melbourne City Council, we have done, we do these large workshops with young girls. So we bring girls aged 15 to 25 years of age into the room with policymakers and architects and um, the City of Melbourne have been very um, active in that that space and so have the public transport people as well I should say Um, and we do look at how we can co-design solutions with women and young girls Um, and and I think that we should be optimistic about what we can potentially change. I think there's something about, um, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric in the media about kind of men's behaviour change and I think that's all incredibly important but it's a long game And so we do need to think very carefully about what we can do to um, make cities safer. And also there's a a really interesting thing with um, the idea of actually things being unsafe but also the perception of safety. So a lot of the time because of the ways that women share information and the way that they are constantly modifying their behaviour and there was a lot written about that, we have to kind of understand that the perception of safety is an important thing as well. And just because something bad may not have actually happened doesn't mean that you're not changing your behaviour because of the fear of something happening. And so all of these things make women self-exclude from city spaces um, and um, I think we need to kind of understand the complexity of that.
Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Nicole Carms. She's at Monash University, Director of the XYX Lab over there, as well as a Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture. And I mean, you wrote recently in the conversation, Nicole, uh, about or you used Vienna as an example that they've been doing something called gender mainstreaming for some years now, a couple of decades. Mm. And has that transformed the city there? And I suppose what is it that they've exactly done to improve that feeling, that perception of safety in that city? Yes, well, I guess the, the, the thing that I wrote about in the conversation, um, and I'll say it again, they're kind of really obvious things. So things like lighting, um, expanding sidewalks so that they've they've got better pedestrian access. A lot of it is about accessibility, which kind of sounds pragmatic and maybe basic except that if you can't access city spaces physically then there's this this idea of exclusion happens um and i think it's also important to say again that that these issues don't just benefit women they benefit everybody so um i think that that what you see is a generalized access that means that there are more people out in the city and um feeling more able to have a right to be in the city but I think the other thing that I wrote about in that article is this idea of co-design. So they actually co-designed spaces with girls as young as 10 years of age to think about um, the example I gave was about how they could um, start to bring young girls back into the recreational spaces of parks because they noticed that they were excluding around the age of 10. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting example. The thing we talk about at the XYX Lab is that women, young women are expert in being young women and so they they actually have something very clear to offer those co-design processes uh and and even though i see it all the time i'm still always surprised when i see a police generally man or a politician or a policymaker generally a man ask kind of uh, quite basic questions of young girls because they actually don't really understand their experience of cities at all so that that's a really important thing to have happen it's mm. interesting isn't it because when you say about you know asking girls of of that age group what isn't there for them basically um and we see a lot of skate parks mm. and i know we see that all all over the place and I, I think it's a really important uh, local government initiative to put activity centres out there for, for young people to be active but a lot of these spaces are dominated by young guys often where do the girls go? Mm, that's right. And, and so they're sort of asking for other types of spaces for them to come out and enjoy these places. That's right and actually in the, the park in Vienna that um, I was writing about, um, images show these kind of delightful red hammocks which are these kind of quiet spaces where girls could gather together and, and hang out because they want to be reflective, they want spaces where they can um, you know, uh, observe the environment um, and of course the other really key thing about public space for women is that they feel safe when there's the presence of other women around so to kind of make spaces where women can accumulate and hang out is very very important so um you know the idea that the park has to be active is perhaps something that we need to kind of question um and think about how we use parks differently especially if you're a young woman yeah and some of those stats coming out of free to be uh, i think it might have been in the conversation article that you wrote or, or somewhere else that i read this that two-thirds of all women engaging with free to be sydney so this is not in melbourne that survey said they those who'd had an unsafe experience in a park said they'd never go back alone and 13 percent said they'd never go back at all so there is that kind of exclusion that happens when um a negative experience happens in, in a park and they become consequently um male dominated spaces mm, i mean the behavior you change that that the plan international's research and the xyx labs research measures is is gobsmacking um you know the the fact that around a third of young girls 
don't go out at night because they don't feel safe, that they don't use public transport. These kinds of things change women's whole access to city life in terms of career, in terms of education. We were actually, um, one statistic we have is that when women are sexually harassed on their way to school or work, about 2% of them actually never go back again. So, um, and that may not sound like a lot, but it actually is a lot of women who are then kind of changing their whole um, jobs or education system as a result of that experience. Um, We also know that women often move because of experiences that mean they can't kind of get to work or get to school because of sexual harassment or the fear of sexual harassment in the areas where they're living. So they're big changes to make to your life. Mm. They are. And and so what's going to happen with the Free to Be initiative? Because it has been quite revealing by the sounds of it. Um, I've I've been sort of clicking through and I thought, oh, I've got some information to share, but it's actually some of these projects have have closed now for data. So what's what's the next step? Well, I think um, a a good thing that will happen is you'll start to see the archive maps. So you'll still be able to access the information, even though the data collection period has closed. Um, So at the moment we're, as as you mentioned, we're working through kind of um, analysing all of the data. And then what we plan to do is to create a whole series of recommendations for each city um, so that we can work with local councils and policymakers um, in each of those cities to think about what the next steps are. But they're also um, Plan International are gearing towards a huge uh, kind of media release of this work uh, at the International Day of the Girl, which happens every year in October. So there'll be a, another really large push around what this data kind of shows us. Uh, and then for us, it's about really then um, agitating for change with policymakers and planners. Yeah, because we need to see it happen, we the do. change. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having uh, me. Dr Nicole Carms, Director of the XYX Lab. I think I said XYZ earlier. Anyway, <laughs> XYX Lab over at Monash University. It's really great to have you with us and we'll um, follow your work. Thanks very much. It's uh, Spot on, 9.30 on Triple R. 3 Triple R. When we first asked artist Brooke Andrew to join us, it was to speak about his contribution to the book Remembering the Mile Creek Massacre and also the Boiler Room lecture coming up this week called Walking on Bones, Empowering Memory. But from the outset, Brooke, we must congratulate you on being named the Artistic Director of the Biennale of Sydney, which is huge news and congratulations. Thank you. And so, Brooke, um, I guess in the wake of this huge announcement last week, you've probably only had a, a few days, I imagine, to process it. What do you think you might do with the, the Biennale? Do you have much of a, a sense of, of what might happen um, in 2020? Yeah, well, I suppose the good thing about uh, being invited to put in a proposal for something so interesting is that I've had a few months to think about it before it was <laughs> announced. But, of course, you know, just looking at just reflecting on my own practice and what I'm interested in, you know, internationally, I think that it's all about edge cultures and, and you know, kind of balancing the kind of the centre, I suppose, with, you know, those dominant narratives that are out there. And I think that people are going to thirst for it, especially in Australia. You totally agree. And I suppose as, as a Wiradjuri man, you're um, the first Aboriginal director of this festival as well. So I imagine this is feeling pretty significant. Yeah, no, it's pretty exciting. I mean, you know, the Biennale has been going since 1973 and it's had some really fantastic, uh, you know, uh, artistic directors. But of course, it's only recently where Mami Katioka was the first uh, uh, artistic director from this region, you know, from Japan. So it's really great to be able to focus uh, a visual arts, you know, kind of uh, festival, I suppose, from, from our region. 
as well, and also an Indigenous perspective which many Australians support. Yeah, and there's, I mean, as we mentioned in the introduction, there's so many reasons to have you on today, Brooke, and as well as writing on the, the Mile Creek Massacre in, in particular in this book that's come out, you're also overseeing a major research project called Representation, Remembrance and the Monument, which is inquiring into the ways we could, I guess, better account for our violent and troubled colonial history in this country. I guess if we just look at the Mile Creek Massacre in particular, how does this instance, I guess, stand out in the context of, of other massacres that took place throughout the frontier wars and, and the way that it's been memorialised? I mean, I think that the most important thing about the Mile Creek is it was the first uh, time in colonial history where uh, perpetrators were brought to, uh, I suppose, to to the gallows themselves. I mean, they were murdering or, you know, a, a very, you know, sad um, massacre that happened. And it was the first time in Australian history, in colonial history, where these people were, yeah, I suppose, convicted of their crimes. Unfortunately, after that, a lot of it went underground. We know that a lot of massacres were underground. Uh, but, you know, because of this commemoration right now, it's an important aspect of not only local but international remembrance. At this memorial um, forum we're having this week, we've got people from all over the world, from the Sand Creek Massacre National Park. We've got Otto Braided Hair coming from the USA, a very significant site, and very similar to the Mile Creek Massacre site as far as it being a healing walk. And um, as you're mentioning, you've got people coming from all over and you have actually been interviewing people for some years, I understand, about the way that uh, genocide and massacres are, are memorialised elsewhere in the world. And maybe give our listeners a bit of a sense of the kinds of people you've been speaking to and the kinds of memorials you've been having a look at. Sure, sure. I mean, this was very significant in regards to creating a level playing field around trauma sites because many Australians uh, do visit, for example, the killing fields in Cambodia or Auschwitz and Birkenau in, in Poland uh, and also Gallipoli. But we don't often visit or even know about the massacres, the many massacres that are have happened in Australia. So the whole idea was to do this international comparative research. It was an, it is part of an Australia Research Council grant, so which is artist-led, which is very rare, and we're very privileged to do it. But it means that we could meet with people like, for example, you know, well, Gail, um, who is part of the family of Otto Braided Hair over in uh, the United States, and talk to them about how they created an actual national park called the Sand Creek Massacre National Park. It's the first uh, national park in the history of the United States of America with the name Massacre in it, sort of battlefield. Uh, also met with people like Yuk Chung, who is the uh, director of the Document Centre in Cambodia, who's in the process of building a very major uh, building, which has many purposes, uh, by, by Zaha Hadid, for example, the famous architect who's now passed away. But the importance of that site is that it is a memorial, it's a learning centre, it's a, uh, an archive centre, and it's something like that which has inspired local Aboriginal people here like Linda Norman Parker and uh, a working, an Indigenous working group here to create a national uh, uh, resting place, which is still in the planning process, but we'll be looking at that as a model as part of this week's forum. 
And we know that as a country, we've got a long way to go before appropriately, I guess, acknowledging and, and um, memorialising the frontier wars. I know that the Australian War Memorial has been reluctant to kind of acknowledge the frontier wars as, as just that. I know with Mile Creek and, and other kind of massacre sites around the country, there's grassroots efforts to, I guess, develop that further. But, but do you see, I guess, hope in, in where we're tracking at the moment with more appropriately accounting for our, our history, given there's been a lot of silence about it in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think it's complex because there is so much oh, in, tied up with policy. So, you know, we had the policy of segregation, which is apartheid. Uh, it was very much influenced the apartheid laws in South Africa. People don't know about that. And, you know, then we had the policy of assimilation, and these are all around complex issues of primitivism and anthropology, where they thought and some people sadly still think that aboriginal people are uh primitive people or stone age culture which is of course ridiculous and uh it's very misleading and unfortunate for all human beings i think across the globe to create these continual divisions but it's i suppose a very difficult thing to get over that legacy but we are getting there and i think that with these international comparisons with not only indigenous people overseas but also for example uh, even to do with the second world war and peter eisenman's uh, memorial to the murdered jews in berlin people also go to that site people are understanding that these legacies of trauma sites have to go far beyond our own prejudice or fear or guilt it's really about how we own our own story and australia has a very mixed story and if we own that and we want to heal through that i think that that's a really positive affirmation Oh, we're speaking with artist Brooke Andrew and in um, the contribution to the Marem- Remembering the Mile Creek Massacre book where a whole lot of interviews that you did are published there, there is discussion around the significance now of the old Melbourne jail site. Can you tell people what they will experience if they, they go to that site now? And I suppose um, yeah, that you were part of that public artwork there at the top of Franklin Street in Melbourne called Standing by uh, Tanaminawait and Mulboyena, which um, was paid for by the city of Melbourne. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that site? Sure. I mean, it's a very significant memorial because it is the first time that any government body has created funds for a site to commemorate the frontier walls. And when we're talking about the frontier walls, this is over 140 years. So, of course, it's the landing of Philip, 1788, right across Australia. It's such a vast land mass and the frontier wars affected people even arguably up until the present day because we're looking at the legacies of the removal of Aboriginal children and and also incarceration of Aboriginal people. Uh, And so it really depends on how you see that, but Turner, Minnewe and Moibahina were two Tasmanian Aboriginal men that basically wanted uh, revenge and it was part of traditional Aboriginal law. So uh, they weren't just kind of rogue, you know, uh, people going around killing people, but they uh, their, their own family um, were affected by uh, some uh, white men in Tasmania who murdered and raped their own family members. And so what they did is they came to Melbourne looking for these, these guys and through Aboriginal law they, um, you know, did their own uh, ceremony. But unfortunately uh, there is, you know, kind of a long debate about whether these guys were the actual perpetrators or not because you have names like John Smith they were a bit difficult to deal with. But these were, the Tenemenawe and Moibahina were the first two men um, and Aboriginal people to be hung in the Melbourne colony. So 
sorry, I've got a whole bunch of children walking past me at the moment. <laughs> we but know. anyway, it's a... Uh, and I think that it's important that people... We know that you're actually waiting for all of your international delegates to arrive, um, Brooke, to take part in the uh, Walking on Bones Empowering Memory Lecture, and we're going to have to let you go. Um, But uh, thank you so much for being with us today, and um, we can link people up to um, the book and also to the lecture if they want to go later this week. And uh, all the best. I hope we can have you back on Triple R to talk about the Sydney Biennale when it's a bit closer to the day. Oh, no, it would be a pleasure. And um, people should know that it's booking out fast for, the, for tomorrow night at the State Library of Victoria, so best to get in quick. Definitely. And um, thanks so much and all the best. Thank you. Uh, Brooke Andrew, um, sorry we had to cut that short. I think we're losing sound, but Sounds I know like <laughs> he's got about he's got so many people arriving. Um, very very busy man, right there. And uh, you can actually um, still still get tickets, as he said, to um, the lecture, the Boiler Room lecture, as part of the uh, uh, Memorial Forum, which is taking place this week. I think it's going to be a really significant event and I think rich conversation. And um, we actually missed the end of what he said there about what's um, the Franklin Street Memorial. Um, in that area around the old Melbourne jail and you should hang, head, head there. It's a beautiful garden setting but um, really good storytelling there as well and I think it's becoming quite a significant site in our city. Can't wait to see what he does with the Sydney Biennale as well. I know. It's be something else. We've got to set him up with Richard Watts. Totally. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And this year's Emerging Writers Festival has a wonderfully rich program and includes a speakeasy panel on death. One of the panel speakers is Hayley West. She's a Castlemaine-based artist and death advocate whose studio is a space where the public can educate themselves on death and experience death-themed artworks and events. And it's really great to have you on Triple R, Hayley. Thanks. And uh, when I when I first met you ten or fifteen years ago, you were an artist based in Darwin. Um, was yeah. that when you started to sort of ponder death and include it in your work, or has that come later? Um, I think it's always kind of been hanging around. Um, but uh, my mum died when I was in Darwin, and I think it started become, to become a bit more prominent in my works. You know, towards the end of Darwin, and having a child also makes you kind of face your own mortality a little bit quicker. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels yeah. like we we kind of try to avoid speaking about or, or thinking too much about death. I guess particularly for people who might not follow a, a particular religion and that sort of thing. Mm. Have you found in, in your work and also particularly, I guess, with your work in death cafes in, in Castle, Maine, mm. that there has been a, a real desire for people to engage with, with mortality? Yeah, definitely. I think um, especially, as you say, when you don't have a religion to fall back on who tells you what to do in that kind of point of life, um, I think it's, it, it, people really struggle with it. And I think um, once death was kind of taken out of community and out of the homes and given over to hospitals and funeral homes, then people have become uh, less in tune with what's going on and don't see dead bodies. Um, You know, bodies used to be laid out in homes, um, even in Western cultures. So, yeah, I think people are really um, a struggle, especially when when their elderly parents are um, 
towards the end of their life and they don't want to talk about the fact that they're dying or what's going to happen after they're dead. Um, so there's a lot of people who come to death cafes who are in that situation who kind of need some assistance of how to tackle it with their parents. And But on the other hand, I get um, elderly couples who come who are super organised and have their you know, advanced care directives ready and wills and everything and they're their children don't want to hear about it. So there's a whole mix of people that are coming for different reasons. People have had traumatic deaths in their family or with friends. Um, I mean, our Shire here has a really high rate of suicide. Um, so a lot of people in this community have experienced um, friends and family dying by suicide. Um, so, and I get younger people who come who want to talk about death and dying, but their friends think they're really morbid. Um, and then I also get parents come and bring their children too. So I get a real, real mix of people coming, um, which is kind of interesting too. It makes the conversation different each time. You put, there's so much in what you just said there, Hayley. And I was even, you know, just going right back to the beginning, you, you talked about, you know, we, in the past, we've, we've laid bodies out at home. And mm. I, I mean, the question straight away came to me is, are we allowed to do that anymore? It feels like that's not what oh, happened. Yeah. And I think like there is sort of a, a legal aspect as well to death. Yeah, well, we are allowed to do that. And you can die at hospital and ask for your person to be taken home even after death. Um, it depends uh, what funeral home that you're working with or what hospital you're working with. Um, Victoria, in Victoria, we're actually very lucky that we, if we want to, and if your family's up for it, we can actually do every aspect of the funeral ourselves. We can even transport the body here, in, but in other states you can't do that. I mean, I'd say that, but I mean, you have to be prepared and the person who's died has to have talked about what their wishes and... There's also, there's a, there's a, there's people that are very skilled who don't work in an institution or for a company who are death doulas. And these are people who come to your family and to your home and help you through that process. And there's a bit of a movement to, I mean, death doulas have always been around and particularly I think they've, you know, in the past they've either been nurses or people in the community that come home and help you dress the body for the, for the funeral. Um, and there's a real movement to bring that back to community and actually Central Victoria has quite a few death doulas or death midwives they're known as as well and they're, they're really um, you know fantastic caring people who can come and, and move you through that process if you want to do it yourself. Of course some people you know the whole concept of death is, is quite um, confronting so I think the thing is about with, with my work and my practice and my death literacy advocacy work is that I'm trying to, um, you know, empower people with knowledge and choice. And um, so often people don't realise that, yes, you can die at home or, yes, you can do the funeral yourself. Um, they've never thought of it. They've never been told that. They just, you know, they're, they're, generally people will use a funeral home um, that, you know, they went the one that they used last when they went to a funeral or that their family have used before and there's you don't really shop around people don't and, and in that kind of fragile state and vulnerable state people don't like to shop around for costs for funerals but there's you know even that is kind of um becoming a little bit more open now like there's a website called gathered here and um they've put together price lists of funeral uh, funeral homes around Victoria and they um, 
you know, and, and the, so you can compare online. You don't have to ring anybody up even. But of course, some funeral homes don't like that idea at all because there are um, a lot of costs that people aren't aware of that they just pay for because at that point of time, they're, it's, they're quite in a vulnerable situation. So, yeah, I'm all about people learning and um, bringing, you know, taking that information I give them and taking it back to their communities and to their families and, you know, and it's also through my art practice too, you know, um, people experiencing uh, an artwork about death um, in, a, in a public environment and then going away from that exhibition and really thinking about what am I going to do, you know, what do my parents want or... How is my, you know, my person that I love going to be treated at the end of life or at their funeral? What do they want? You know, some people don't even know if people want to, their mother wants to be buried or cremated. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> d- death, it, it's such a, a heavy topic and, and often a morbid topic. And it sounds like some of what you're doing is, is pragmatic in terms of helping people make decisions about funerals and, and, and that type of thing when um, yeah. they, they, their life does end. But, I mean, is it very, do you have much variation, I guess, in the types of people who come in and the types of conversations you have? I mean, is it ever, I mean, it sounds weird mm. to be talking about a joyous conversation about death, but is it always really heavy or, or do you have kind of lighter, no. more, more fun conversations yeah. as well? Uh, yeah, Death Cafe is a fantastic, actually. Well, all the ones that I've experienced myself or that I've co-hosted, um, they've been different every time. And, you know, I always bring a box of tissues with me, but generally they're not used. I think people, you have sometimes you can have a really philosophical conversation. Other times you can um, have a, a kind of a more medical conversation. It depends who's there. Um, you know, I have palliative care um, nurses that come um, and people within the funeral industry that come um, and then just people like me, you know, who are kind of just want to talk about it. There's artists, musicians who come along. It just depends. I guess Death Cafe, the first hour you kind of take up introducing yourself and why you're there and why you're interested in coming to talk about death and dying it doesn't have to be very long and then the second hour is taken up um talking you know, picking up on part, different things in conversation that have come up during that first hour but death cafe is also a confidential space too and it's not a space it's not a counseling session so that's fantastic in that it it can go in any direction like people aren't coming to grieve at a death cafe they're coming to talk and discuss issues you know so and they're always not for profit they're always in a space that has um food and and drink nourishment you know that's really important i think that's why it's called death cafe um you know you have to have food and and um hot drinks in winter and you know all that kind of thing that makes it a comfortable space um yeah so yeah it can be different every time uh, Hayley West is uh, speaking with us. Uh, she is a death advocate and artist and part of a Speakeasy Death event uh, coming up later this week at the Emerging Writers Festival. And uh, Hayley, you know, for me recently, I have friends whose three-year-old son died in a, a farm accident and it's been really mm-hmm. confronting how much people and their friends just don't know what to say so they don't say anything yeah. to them and stay out of contact. And that's been mm-hmm. probably, you know, as aside from the incredible grief that will be forever, that has mm. been very difficult. And I wonder, I mean, these are the kinds of questions that people ask at these kinds of events. You know, what yeah. can I do when I feel so helpless uh, and there's no 
there's no kind of um, recipe for how to be a friend in those no, sorts of circumstances. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think not only are people confused by the concept of death and what is beyond, but they're also the other reason why we don't talk about it is because we don't know how to talk about grief and we don't know how to deal with other people's grief. You know, people cry in public spaces and people kind of get freaked out by that. You don't, and I think it's that thing, if you don't know what's going on in other people's lives at that point when people are angry or, you know, I think grief is just something that's so individual that we kind of just stay clear of it. And that's one of the problems, I think, about talking about death and dying. It's, um, yeah, just when something tragic like that happens to a family, people just don't know what to do don't, or what to say. And that is a real problem. Um, and especially for children, if there are other siblings as well, you know, that kind of thing. I lost a sister when she was three and I was six. And um, it was like, never talk, you know, we never talked about my sister again or photographs were taken out of the house. Um, it was, I think it was, you know, we just kind of got on with it. And people think kids get on with it. They just continue playing and doing their thing. And same with mums and dads, you know. So uh, there's that kind of attitude of, oh, let's just make things feel normal and bring normality back into their lives. So let's not talk about it. Well, and also, uh, I think social media plays a really good role in having a space for people to actually voice their concern about someone or their their way to kind of... I know it's only... It can be simple and a one-liner or an emoji, but just little things like that can help people know that they're being thought about, whereas previously, potentially, you know, we just ignored that family or, um, yeah, just kind of got on with it. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, collective grief lately and just that idea of um, communities and cities coming together where um, when somebody famous dies or some somebody dies tragically, like Euro dies. Um, and, and that's kind of like a way for people to get together as a group, as a collective and grieve for somebody they don't know but it also at the same time they could be grieving for the people they do know themselves that have died. So I find that, yeah, that collective grieving really important for communities as well. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah, the, the people do come to Death Cafe with all sorts of experiences. Yeah, and you're, traumatic you're, and not traumatic. And you're appearing at an event as part of the Emerging Writers Festival this Thursday. Speakeasy Death is the, the name of that particular event. What mm-hmm. can people expect there? Well, we're having dinner and I think I'm doing a presentation. There's three of us. There's Pierre Interlandi and Elizabeth Flux and myself. And we do a 10-minute introduction about who we are. Then we sit down have dinner um, and then the, the group that we're sitting down with um, are welcome to ask us questions. And then we get up and change spots. So the three of us will change tables and we do that twice. So there'll be a, um, you know opportunity for discussion, a kind of a with, within a group, but kind of a more intimate setting. And again, it's with food and nourishment, which is nice. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> 
Well, it's really great having you on Triple R, Hayley, and um, and I hope it goes really well. This I understand it's the first time um, that you've part- participated in the Emerging Writers Festival mm. and also um, this kind mm. of event. So um, all the best, and it sounds like you've got great preparation though in um, your involvement in death cafes um, over yes. several years, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, all the best with your role as a death advocate as well. I understand you're part of the Castlemaine Cemetery Trust Board, and um, you're yes. expanding that work. And the Natural Death Advocacy Network, too. There's a whole other thing to talk about. Natural death, environmentally friendly ways to dispose of your body. <laughs> uh, we need to get for you back. Time. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for being there and, uh, and enjoy the event uh, this week. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Hayley West, uh, artist and death advocate and uh, part of that uh, really fascinating panel of speakers and also conversationalists uh, taking place as part of the Emerging Writers Festival this week. And the Emerging Writing Festival is um, well underway and there's an amazing program. So many great events on. Yeah. It's a great year. year. Yeah, for sure. So um, look that up online or on your socials. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.